0: Hey, there's a show you might want to know about. Now in its 10th season, Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom is a podcast about tragedy, triumph, unequal justice, and actual innocence. Based on the files of the lawyers who represent them together with other criminal justice activists and experts, Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom features interviews with men and women who have spent years in prison for crimes they did not commit. Some of them having even been sentenced to death. These are their stories. Look for Wrongful Conviction wherever you listen to podcasts.
1: Hi. How are you?
2: Scene. On. S. S. C. E.
0: Scene. Yeah,
3: yeah. Everything all right?
2: Scene on radio.
3: This is my relative. We're still speaking to each other. I'm on the other side here, and Frank has every right in the world to want to make money on his land, and I have every right in the world to try to prevent fracking from screwing the value of my land. And unfortunately, I don't see how we can satisfy both of us, so I'm going by the political process of the majority wins.
0: Imagine that a guy who sees that he and the other guy have opposing interests. He gets the other fellow's position and respects his right to have it. And he says, well, let's get everybody together and vote on what to do. I think that's what they used to call democracy, right? In the fever of a presidential election year, it's easy to get the idea that national politics are the place where American democracy plays out, where our future gets decided. It's also easy these days to conclude that our democracy is very sick, maybe terminal, not to diminish national politics at all. No doubt the decision about the next president has enormous consequences. Just take the supreme court or climate, never mind immigration or the other racially loaded issues in this weird and alarming cycle. It's as if the two national parties were living on separate planets and a lot of people on both sides probably wish that were the case. But every day in states, cities, and small towns, people confront local issues and they wrestle locally with national and global issues. What does our democracy look like these days at the local level, where people have to run into each other at the coffee shop again next week, as opposed to just shouting across social media or in competing press conferences? I'm John B. it's Seen on Radio, the podcast from CDS, the Center for Documentary Studies. A few years ago, I got to team up with several fine producers on a CDS project called Groundwork. It became a series and a radio special, telling stories about local political action. Those stories, which aired in the last leap year, 2012, explored issues still very much alive today. In this episode, two of those stories with updates. We visit a pair of communities thousands of miles apart, each struggling over questions about energy, how we get it, and what we're doing in the process to our air, water, and quality of life. First, to the island of Kodiak, Alaska, a place where man-made changes to the planet threaten people's livelihoods, possibly soon. Let's see, let me just make sure I'm functioning here, check. That's me getting ready to interview Alexis Kwachka. We're sitting in his house on a steep mountainside overlooking Kodiak's shimmering harbor. I ask him a standard throwaway question to set my recording levels. What did you have for breakfast? His answer is pure Kodiak. Salmon. Why not?
1: (laughs) I'm a salmon fisherman, of course
0: I eat fish. (laughs) Alexis is 45, a big guy with jet black hair. He's been a professional fisherman since he was about 20. He keeps his modern aluminum boat just down the hill from his house in St. Paul Harbor.
1: 32 feet by 16 feet, packs about 20,000
2: pounds of salmon.
0: Kodiak is Alaska's biggest fishing port and its most diversified. Besides salmon, Kodiak's fishermen catch crab, cod, halibut, herring, a little of everything. Overall, Alaskan fishermen pull more than five billion pounds of seafood from the oceans every year. So when people in Kodiak hear about a threat to the oceans, it's not abstract and it's not just about loving nature.
2: Think gets to the heart of the nature.
0: 25 people or so, including Alexis Kwachka, come together on a cold night in January for what's billed as a roundtable talk about ocean acidification. I
2: think we'll probably go ahead and get started. Uh.
0: Rachel Donkersloat is with the group that organized the event, the Alaska Marine Conservation Council.
3: Just, I'm just trying to get a sense of who's in the room. Neil Rickman, I'm a commercial fisherman and just wanted to see what's going on. Uh, Justin Thede and I'm just working with the jig fleet. I'm Jennifer Rich Creek, concerned citizen and member of a fishing dependent community.
0: Next, a leading scientist on ocean acidification, or OA, gives an overview with pictures and graphs. Robert Foy directs the Kodiak Laboratory for NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. He says since the start of the Industrial Revolution, the oceans have absorbed much of the carbon that people pumped into the atmosphere.
3: For a long time, everyone said, Fantastic. 26% goes back into the ocean, the ocean's an empty sink, and we'll just keep hoping it dumps in there. In fact, there are but
0: at some point, scientists realized all that carbon was changing the chemistry of the sea. It's made the water 30% more acidic than in pre-industrial days, so far. Some call ocean acidification the evil twin of climate change. More carbon in the water means there's less of other substances that many ocean creatures need like calcium carbonate. A crab needs carbonate
3: in order to make a shell.
0: In his lab in Kodiak, Foy has Alaskan crabs living in the kind of acidic water that scientists estimate will be typical in the oceans later this century. The result? The crabs die.
3: What we don't know, can animals acclimate and adapt? That's the biggest question.
0: The discussion among the audience of fishermen starts with gallows humor.
3: I just hope whatever does survive, we can sell.
0: (laughs) People ask questions about the science. Then there's talk of how to cut carbon emissions, even among fishermen themselves who run their boats on diesel fuel. One woman hints that the problem of acid oceans is just too big.
2: We've talked about energy, and, and it's a valuable conversation, but we can't do very much immediately about this.
0: But another guest expert says fishermen can do something. Brad Warren is a former fishing industry journalist who's now traveling the country raising awareness about ocean acidification. He tells the Kodiak fishermen to call lawmakers.
2: When they hear from people like you who make a living from this, there's nobody else who can speak to this like you can, as fishermen. You are the voice that matters.
1: In Alaska, there's such a small amount of us, I think there's about 600,000 people in the state, that when people get mad in Alaska, they pick up the phone and they call their representative or their senators, and and they say, hey, what's going
0: on with this? So it's a unique uh, place to live from that perspective. I mean, most of us have met our senators and and our representative. The fisherman, Alexis Kwachka, says he has sometimes talked with Alaska's representatives about fishing matters, both in the state and in Washington, D.C., Have you ever had those kind of conversations with any of your congressional delegation about ocean acidification?
1: No, but after last night's meeting, I
0: will do so. That was the hope behind the Kodiak meeting and a couple of others like it in Alaska. The nonprofit that organized the meetings, the Alaska Marine Conservation Council, was founded in the 90s partly by fishermen and it hopes to turn working marine people into their own best lobbyists. The council recorded video testimonies by fishermen and put them in an interactive kiosk that's now being placed in outdoor public spaces around Alaska.
3: With no fish coming back, our livelihood is gone. Our lifestyle is gone. All I ask for my children is an opportunity. Get us off carbon. In
0: 2013, using fishermen testimonies, the Conservation Council pushed the Alaska state government to fund OA research. But if you're an Alaskan fisherman, how do you make real change happen? How do you move the needle on the nation's carbon policy? Thirty-five hundred miles from Kodiak, in Washington D.C. Hello to all of our panelists. Alaska Senator Lisa Murkowski convenes a meeting of the Senate Oceans Caucus. Murkowski, a Republican, says she has heard from fishermen about ocean acidification, and a few years ago she sponsored a bill to fund more research on it. But when it comes to the much bigger job of shifting the country away from fossil fuels, some environmentalists say Alaska's congressional delegation, along with Congress as a whole, has done appallingly little. One possible reason, fishing is big business in Alaska, but oil is bigger. Senator Murkowski. I do want to have it all. I want to make sure that the, the, the oceans are clean while well, at the same time uh, we've got jobs for the people that live there. Jobs for fishermen, jobs for, for people within the oil industry, a sustainable economy. In Kodiak, some people despair over the lack of congressional action on carbon emissions. But the town of Kodiak isn't waiting for Congress.
3: So with that, I'd like to call to order this uh, annual or monthly meeting of the Kodiak Electric Association for January 26, 2000.
0: Its electricity co-op, which has fishermen on its board, has gone all in on renewables. With a big hydroelectric plant and new wind turbines on the mountain overlooking the harbor, Kodiak now produces almost 100% of its electricity without pumping any carbon into the atmosphere or the sea. Fracking gets more headlines than acid oceans. States and local communities across the country have debated whether to allow the gas drilling technique. More than 20 states now permit hydraulic fracturing, from California to Pennsylvania. The technology transformed the nation's energy picture and helped to drive down oil prices. Fracking involves the injection of water and chemicals into underground shale deposits to free natural gas. Natural gas emits less greenhouse gas than coal if it's extracted and handled cleanly. But those are big ifs, and natural gas is still a fossil fuel New York State placed a moratorium on the technology in 2008. State officials then spent years sorting through thousands of public comments. In the meantime, dozens of rural communities that sit on enormous deposits of shale gas faced their own decisions. Producer John Miller
1: followed the conversation in one New York town. Everybody ready? Don Barber never really liked his job as an engineer at Corning, so he quit to raise draft horses in the town of Caroline, population about 3,000 in the wooded hills of New York's southern tier. Now Barber is Caroline's town supervisor, the top elected official. Every fall, he gives hay rides at the town's Apple Festival.
2: Yeah, this uh, Apple Festival is good for the community. People get together and they see each other. And it's just a nice way for community to, to share their gifts.
1: The community in Caroline is impressively diverse. There are plumbers and roofers and college professors, backwoods folk living in trailers, back to the landers living in yurts and long established farm families with lots of land, but not much money. Don Barber says people tend to get along. It's a point of pride here. But the prospect of fracking had the town in an existential tizzy.
2: Everybody's talking about it. It's their future. Some people view it as this is the way that I'm going to be able to keep my farm. I'm going to be able to keep my land. And other people go, everything I've lived for will be worth nothing as a result of this. And
1: so the extremes are huge, and the passion is
2: just as strong on both sides.
1: As town supervisor, Barber's job was to make sure everyone was heard, and that meant lots of public meetings.
2: Can I have your attention? Thank you.
1: In September, in a packed community center, Barber handed the floor to Bill Padulka from a group called Residents Opposing Unsafe Shale Gas Extraction, or ROWS. Padulka was there to deliver a petition signed by roughly half of Caroline's registered voters. That
3: is 1,147 signatures from people who have signed this statement that they would like the town board to take some kind of action to ban the use of high volume thick water hydraulic fracturing in the town of Caroline.
1: With the state still not issuing permits, there was no fracking yet in Caroline, but more than half the land was already leased to gas companies. Some residents stood up to talk about the benefits of drilling or to downplay the dangers. But most, like Ann Bain, talked about risk, to health, to the water, to the way of life here
2: a means to prevent this unpredictable nightmare. Above all, it lets all members of the community take charge of Caroline's future. Thank you.
1: After the meeting, people stayed to carry on the conversation, among them two men from an old Caroline family, John Confer, a retired biologist, wearing a baseball cap from a conservation group, and Frankie Yapel, a farmer with overalls and a beard.
2: We feel the control is to get the best lease possible with the gas company. But I want the right to get another lease. Unfortunately, People come in, and they're here five or ten years, and they gain political power and start telling us how to do things.
3: This is my relative. We're still speaking to each other. I'm on the other side here. I live on a knoll, and I look down on flat land, which is the ideal place to put drilling rigs with 724 noise and flaring of gas which would ruin my property value. And Frank has every right in the world to want to make money on his land. And I have every right in the world to try to prevent fracking from screwing the value of my land. And unfortunately, I don't see how we can satisfy both of us. So I'm going by the political process of the majority wins.
1: But the majority wins isn't always straightforward. There may have been a groundswell against fracking in Caroline, but the town board favored drilling three to two, and they were the ones who could say yay or nay. Or maybe not. Under New York state law, only the state can regulate the oil and gas industries. A few days after the citizens group in Caroline presented its petition, a gas company based in Denver sued a neighboring town that had banned fracking, saying a ban was a form of regulation. Three days later, another town was sued, this time by a landowner. To Caroline board member Toby McDonald, banning fracking was just asking for trouble.
3: New York State has a set of laws,
0: and their rules supersede any local municipality's laws. Does it make sense to be jumping in, trying to wrest the power away from New York State? I just think that's crazy.
1: Two weeks after the lawsuits were filed, the Caroline Town board voted against pursuing a ban. But that vote wasn't necessarily the end of the story, because in November, McDonald and another pro-drilling board member were up for re-election against a pair of anti-fracking challengers.
3: Hey there, Hi, Aaron Snow um, over on Buffalo Road. One of those
1: challengers was Aaron Snow, aged 27 from a seventh generation dairy farming family. Snow got an engineering degree, then spent two years in Tanzania with the Peace Corps. Now he's back on the family farm, making cheese to sell at the local farmer's market.
3: uh, one of the main issues I'm running for is the whole um, gas issue. Um, oh. Hydrofagging coming into uh, Caroline and kind of the effects that'll have. So I'm just Four gonna... For or against? Me, I am, with the current technology and the way it's done,
1: I am against it coming into the okay. town of Caroline. Okay. Um, and I don't know... Kind of Snow drove from house to house in a borrowed car, usually he bikes it was October and the forests of Caroline were ablaze with color. And the roads were lined with yard signs for fracking, against fracking, and for all four candidates running for town board.
3: I mean, Caroline's a diverse group of people. It's it's so, I think that, that's why it's such a difficult issue getting everyone together on this,
1: on this fracking. In the late afternoon, Snow walked up a little dirt road to the organic farm of a woman named Anna Gibson. She'd spoken up against fracking at public meetings. Hey, and uh
3: hey. How are you doing? All right, thanks. Very right. good. So I was, I was going door to door and getting ready for election time. And we were talking a little bit about fracking and just kind of how it's dividing the neighborhood and how, you know, the animosity. I
0: think everybody's really been pretty well behaved. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It could be a whole lot more hostile than yeah. it has been.
3: <laughs> and uh, I don't know. It's just democracy. Democracy is yeah. a messy business. Yeah, yeah. Uh, if it really is working, then it's going to continue to be
0: messy. Neat and orderly is, is more scary than when everybody gets to say
3: what they're thinking and, and wanting.
1: Snow's last stop was after dark at a dairy barn that had clearly seen better days. He made his way through a thicket of pro-drilling yard signs, through a screen door, and into the milk room. The farmer, Tony Tavelli was finishing the evening milking. He owns more than 300 acres, but said even with a second job, he was barely scraping by.
3: I, I see this gas industry as saving the dairy industry, mm-hmm. and that's why I fight so hard for it. because this
1: As they talked, a burly, bearded man walked in wearing a red, white and blue baseball cap and suspenders. Peter! It was Peter Hoyt, one of Snow's rivals, for a seat on the town board. His position was more political than economic. He said the board had no business telling landowners what to do.
0: You know, people use the word activist government as sort of a uh, complementary adjective. Uh, to me, it's not really complimentary. I would prefer to use the word interferist.
1: As for the tone of the campaign, he said that had been pretty healthy.
0: What characterizes us out here is some very heated debates, and then when it's over with, we're all standing around gabbing and, you know, just kind of catching up with each other.
2: After you get your paper ballot, you go it in one of those privacy.
1: When election day finally came, the turnout was higher than anyone could remember. Hey,
2: here it comes yeah.
1: the that night, when the votes were counted, the anti frackers had won in a landslide. <laughs> So to town supervisor Don Barber, who hosted the victory party, the election wasn't about the pros and cons of fracking, or even about the rights of some residents versus the rights of others. It was about the right of communities to work out their differences and decide their own futures.
3: Well, that's, that's the
2: democratic process that we went through. We started with a petition, and then it goes to this election. That's how it works.
1: And the key, he said, was effective local government. The federal government
2: has advocated for corporations The state is doing exactly the same thing. The only one left is local government to advocate for the citizens. And so that's part of this big issue. Can corporations come in and run roughshod over land use policy or not? That's the one that has to be taken to the mat.
0: John Miller reported and produced that piece. In September of 2012, nearly a year after the vote by the people of Caroline, the town board voted 4 to 1 to officially ban fracking. Dozens of other New York communities took similar actions. Then in December of 2014, Governor Andrew Cuomo made a surprise announcement. After years of deliberation about whether to allow fracking in New York, Cuomo decided the answer was no and ordered a statewide ban. With the recent drop in oil and gas prices, the fracking boom just across the border in Pennsylvania has begun to go bust. That makes New York's anti-fracking decision look pretty smart. One more twist, the state recently made it legal for citizens and communities to set up solar farms on private land. So some of those Caroline farmers looking to supplement their incomes through the energy business might still have that chance but with renewable energy shining down from above instead of fossil fuels pumped from below. Next time on Scene on Radio.
1: This is how Layla really feels about me. And then I've loved you ever since. You're my favorite. You're my favorite white person. I was thinking about that also recently.
0: A kind of audio love letter from one friend to another. And at the same time, a portrait of that friend who happens to be a pretty great singer and songwriter.
1: Yeah, my music releases, like, my most, like, darkest and angry um, and unloved emotions, but in this way that feels very, very good. Like, I have a song called My Dear America, which sounds like a very, like, un-American, super hateful fucking song, but it's actually just, like, a really sweet love song about my experience growing up Muslim, growing up black, um, and how I felt like I was always the other.
2: You started the fight first, my dear America, I was in love with you. You
0: broke
3: my heart
2: and now we're fucking through.
0: You can hear all our episodes at seenonradio.org, or of course, you can just subscribe to the podcast. Follow me on Twitter at Scene on Radio, and like the Scene on Radio Facebook page, the stories from our groundwork project were made possible by a grant from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. Most of the music on the podcast is by Lucas Bewin and or his dad. Scene On Radio comes from CDS, the Center for Documentary Studies at Duke University.